Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following program was first broadcast on FNR Digital Radio on Sunday, August 23rd, 2015. For more information, visit www.unresolvedshow.co.uk. How much do you know about the history of your house or flat? I mean, it's full history. You might know, for instance, when it was built, or the last time the boiler was serviced, or something vague about its previous occupants. But how much do you know beyond that? How many people do you think have lived in it over the years? How many people have died in it? What do you think is the worst thing that's ever happened there, or the most interesting? If you own your own place, you may know some of the details, but if, like me, you're renting, it's unusual to know much of anything, right? The reason I ask is because the matter is really close to my heart at the moment. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. And the reason for that is pretty simple. I recently moved into a rented flat in North London with quite a crazy history. I discovered that around a decade ago, my new flat had been the scene of a real-life murder. What's more, it didn't take me much digging to figure out that this particular murder was far from an open and shut case. It was far from regular. But the really crazy thing is, the more I've been looking into it, the stranger it's become. And I mean strange. And so, over the past few months, I found myself falling further and further down its weird rabbit hole, trying to unravel the strangest murder mystery I think I've ever heard about. The one that happened inside my own home. Hi, I'm Zoe Drew. You're listening to FNR, and this is Unresolved. One story told piece by piece. In episode one, murder, manslaughter, and insanity. So, like, what do you know for sure? Like, what, what are the facts? That's Rob West talking, my producer on the show and fellow amateur sleuth. 
We're on the way to the flat in question as this was recorded. Okay. <clears throat> so, yeah. Okay. The facts. So, the first thing was I was looking at the place online and thinking, you know, this looks ace as it's so cheap and getting excited about it and imagining my stuff in it and that stuff as you do. But then, as I scrolled down to see the rest of the info, I saw that the, the listing had in like huge capital letters at the bottom something like um, prospective tenants are urged to research the history of the property before inquiring. I mean, that's pretty weird, straight away, like alarm bells. <laughs> exactly. So you've never seen that before, right? No. No, I, I, I've lived in London for about 10 years, moved about <laughs> 10 times. I've never seen like a warning. Prospective tenants are urged to research the history of the property before inquiring. It's weird, right? So I did. I looked into its history. Hey, it was too good a deal not to. I googled the street and the address, and it didn't take five seconds to find a few stories. Ones that I knew must have pertained to what the weird warning meant. Body found in Highgate home, said one headline. Murder and manslaughter in North London, reads another. There were others too, because this case went on for a while. But I'll get to the whys in a bit. First, we need the whats. Namely, what the hell happened inside and outside my flat on October the 3rd, 2005? This conversation, by the way, was the first I had with Rob about it roughly six months ago. I recorded it because I wanted to gauge his interest to see if it was worth pursuing as a story we could do for FNR. Here's what I told him then. So, here's what I know. On, in 2005, on October 3rd, same day there was a solar eclipse over London, a young woman was killed by a car in the street right outside my house. Well, we'll come up to the road in, in a minute. And so, then, when the police arrived... The person who'd been driving the car was found inside my place, along with the body of the guy who owned it at the time. Oh, so, Laura Ray was the hit-and-run victim, a woman called Maggie Hollis was the driver, and the homeowner was called James Logan. Margaret, or Maggie Hollis, went down for both deaths, manslaughter and murder. So woman knocks over another woman mm -hmm. then kills some random dude in your house <laughs> it's weirder than that how well for one thing the guy named james logan when the coroner's office got hold of him they confirmed that he hadn't just died well, how so he'd been killed at least a few years prior to all this happening and maggie the lead suspect she didn't go to prison for it. She's in a mental institution. It's kind of hard to follow already, isn't it? What makes it tougher is that it's not easy to get all the info together. I'll get on to why that is in a bit. But right now, you should only need these salient facts to pique your inner Poirot. We've got a woman in her mid-30s hit by a car. An older woman a private investigator, no less, in her 60s, who flees the scene to a nearby house, that's mine, and then the guy who owned the place at the time found dead. Except, 
According to the forensic analysis done on the body, murdered several years prior to the day the accident took place and definitely killed rather than dying of natural causes, bludgeoned with an electric clothes iron, no less, Grizzly. That's just top-level stuff, though, which was really all I had at the beginning. With the internet of 2005 being somewhat underdeveloped and papers being fickle, news outlets at the time didn't seem too keen to dive any deeper into what looked, on the surface, like little more than a rampage of a crazy old woman. The back end of 2005 was a busy time for headlines, too. With Tony Blair recently re-elected, the war on terror in full swing, and the UK about to change the law to let pubs open 24 hours a day. All of which was a problem in terms of research. I needed to find out how all of this, the car accident, the connection between these key players and James Logan's time of death, fit together. So naturally, it was time to get official. Ready for a quick legal lesson? In the UK... All murder cases go to Central Criminal Court, which you'll also know as Crown Court. That's as opposed to a tribunal, family or civil courts. Everything that happens at Crown Court gets recorded and transcribed. Good news, right? Thing is, in any one case, the judge can rule that these court records be sealed. This can be for a whole host of reasons. And that's what happened with the case against Maggie Hollis. Oh, and the Freedom of Information Act won't help you here either. Sealed court records require a court order to be unsealed, which in my case means every detail from the case may as well have been lit on fire. What I've got are the judge's closing sentiments and some of the core details, and that's it. And to make matters worse, when I started digging, it quickly became apparent that this case seemed cursed. Since 2005, an unhealthy number of the people involved in both the prosecution and the defence have died, while the ones who haven't, well, they had all, at the start of my investigation at least, refused to answer my calls or emails. In a Crown Court case like this, you have two barristers on each side, a QC and a junior, alongside a solicitor apiece with a bunch of paralegals and solicitor advocates in the background acting as researchers. So, the key players here were James Aaron, Harry Dyson and Alison Keane for the defence, while the prosecution was staffed by Michael Jones, Quentin Steer and David Summers. The judge was a Joseph Myers. Sadly, James, Alison, David and Joseph have all passed away in the interim years. While Harry, Michael and Quentin have been ignoring my attempts to reach out. Whether it's by email, phone, Twitter, snail mail, nothing. We also tried to make contact with the more background members of the team, the juniors at the time, and either didn't hear back or flat out couldn't find them. And as for the police, the first responders and the detectives, no clue. The case file exists somewhere at the Met, but we can't have it. I've emailed naturally and got quite a short response from Detective Chief Superintendent Garth Simmons, 
saying, quote, Police often cannot hand over entire case files because they very often contain sensitive information about individuals, police tactics and information that may be subject to data protection. This, as you can imagine, was less than ideal. More and more, the case was looking like a locked box full of secrets, with nobody around to lend me the key. In fact, I was getting ready to call the whole thing off, when I finally got an email back from someone involved. Tom Ray, brother of the hit-and-run victim, Laura, who agreed to meet up for a talk. She was a, uh, like, just a, a fantastic person, you know? That's all, that's all I can think to say when people ask. <laughs> she was just fantastic. And I never really had the chance to, to tell her that. That's Tom speaking. I met him for a coffee a few weeks after my first conversation with Rob, having first tracked him down through LinkedIn to his work. He's a graphic designer, and a good one at that. He's married to a guy named John, whom he actually met in the aftermath of Laura's death, and they live in West London. Tom is fastidious and neat. I remember noting the way he stacked up his discarded sugar packets in a neat line. So he doesn't really strike me as the kind of person to leave stones unturned. Oh, and he and Laura were incredibly close. Like, best friend close. He told me he'd only appear on this show if I promised to try to get answers for some of his long, unanswered questions. And as long as I showed him whatever I found first. Yeah. I agreed. So, you had a kind of sibling rivalry then? Uh, I suppose so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially when it came to men. <laughs> when we were a bit younger, before I met John, I'd always be going on dates, you know. Always be with new people, you know, and not, uh, well, you know, not not in a bad... Oh, God, that sounds awful. Uh, look, I mean, look, whereas she could just... She could just never gel with anyone. But it wasn't because she was difficult or, or picky or, or anything. It was just because she was better than everyone else, I think. I loved her more than anyone, really. Yeah, I get that. So, I mean, how, how would you describe Laura around the time, I mean? Well, well I mean, she was working at a solicitor's. She liked that. We'd been living together for a while, but she decided she wanted to give living alone a go. She'd always joked about, you know, becoming a bit of a cat lady as time went on, but... I don't know. She was happy. She was a happy person, you know, cynical and, and dry, but, but happy, I think. Um, so, okay, uh, I know this isn't a nice thing to talk about, but can you explain the events that led up to Laura's death and what you know about that of James Logan? Uh, uh, yeah, well, um, I mean, I, I, I can certainly tell you what led up to Laura's death, but as for the actual day itself, uh, your best bet is to sit down with the woman who killed her. This wasn't the first time I'd heard this advice. I'd try to get an audience with Margaret Hollis if I were you. This is Mark Thompson, an old university friend of James's, and probably his only real friend up until just before his death. She's the one who killed him, and she's the one who killed that girl, Laura. And she's the one who had the connection to them both. If you want to find out, 
whatever the fuck happened, like I do, I'd go straight to the source. Wait, wait so you, you definitely think Maggie killed them both? Well, I mean, well, she's the one who's locked up, isn't she? I'll get back to both Mark and Tom later. They've got a lot to say. But the main thing to focus on right now, and the thing that I keep being pointed to, is Maggie Hollis's involvement in both deaths. And that's because, as I learned from both Mark and Tom, all three parties here, Laura, Maggie and James, knew one another. They had history. History that stretched all the way back to 1999, at least. So at this point, I was full of questions. How did James die? When did James die? Did Maggie do it? What happened during her court case? And most importantly, how did these three people, Maggie, James and Laura, know each other? How were they linked? It was a head fuck, to put things lightly. But one thing was abundantly clear. I needed to figure out who Maggie Hollis was, where she was, and how she, as the lone survivor of this unusual trio, fit into the whole mess. Hampton Secure Hospital is a high-security psychiatric facility in Nottinghamshire, England. Opened in 1912 as an overflow for the more famous Broadmoor Hospital in Berkshire, it's now one of the UK's largest destinations for people with mental health disorders and those who need high security care. 400 patients are monitored and watched over by 2,000 members of staff here. And since Broadmoor closed its doors to women in 2007, it's become one of the de facto places to send convicted women with serious mental disorders. And because of that, Hampton Hospital is where Maggie Hollis has spent the past eight years of her life. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There was a documentary about this place in the 1970s that uh, ruffled a few feathers. And people, people still think it's like that. But really, I think this is one of the best hospitals in the country. Some of the best staff you'll ever meet work here. That's Dr Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan is one of the hospital's senior forensic psychiatrists and has been working with Maggie for several years now. I'd approached Dr Edwards when the rest of my research hit a brick wall. And because so many people and signs seem to point to the importance of speaking to Maggie Hollis myself. I wrote him a letter explaining that I was from FNR and my connection to the scene of the crime and that I just wanted to get to the bottom of things. And after a few back and forth emails, he agreed to ask Maggie if she would like to speak to me. But Dr. Edwards was, or shall I say, wary as if I was only there to lift the lid on shady goings-on inside the hospital walls, Louis Theroux style. It was called the Secret Hospital. Does that ring any bells? BBC. Um, no, sorry. No, no, don't, don't worry. It was basically, it was a bit of a hatchet job, really. But it did shine a light on some nasty episodes that happened here. Mistreatment going on. Long time ago now, though, obviously. Before me. And really... I mean, if you want to talk about Maggie Hollis, there's no better place. Maggie's been here since the summer of 2006. At trial, her legal counsel decided that the best thing for her, given the evidence and her own account of what went down on and prior to October 3rd, 2005, was that she tried to make an insanity plea. Now, you may have heard about this before in movies or in the media. But the main thing you should know about insanity pleas is this. They're really, really rare. And that's because they don't make a great deal of sense. 90 second crash course time? Okay. We asked Penny Strong, consultant at London-based law firm ALH Crawford, to explain how it works. Over to you, Penny. The first thing to know is that the defence's whole purpose in a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity is to prove that the suspect can be totally excluded from criminal guilt. But that's tricky because insanity in real life is so loosely defined. 
And the main problem there is that mental illness and insanity are two totally different things. One is a kind of medical condition, and the other, insanity, is this weird umbrella term for a social concept that doesn't really have rules. And while you do need to have some form of mental illness to be branded with the insanity iron, proving that what you've got is severe enough to garner that title is a legal nightmare. So what do we turn to in the case of a trial? Well, we're left with a few possible conditions to meet. One, the suspect needs to exhibit a mental illness so powerful that they don't realise what they've done is illegal in the first place. Two, your suspect needs to feel demonstrably compelled by some otherworldly force to commit their crime. Or three, they need to not be aware of what they were doing. At all. As you can imagine, proving that a suspect ticks one of those three boxes is a rigorous process. You need expert testimonial from medical professionals, from forensic mental health professionals who advise the jury. You also need to be able to show and explain that their state of mind has totally removed their ability to reason, both of which are at the mercy of subjectivity. In short, it's a very difficult verdict to shoot for. So with that being the case, it's impressive that, despite all that standing in the way, Maggie Hollis's plea was a successful one. She was sentenced not to prison, but to Hampton, indefinitely, following the court case. That was thanks to a concluding verdict that yes, she did kill both Laura and James, but no, she was not mentally present during either killing. In effect, if you're going for a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity, it means the defence and the prosecution are both arguing the same thing. They're both saying you did it. The only things that change are the concepts of blame and motive. In Maggie's case, her link to the victims and her testimonial at the time, which Dr Edwards' emails told me she still sticks to, left the courts no other choice. But the thing is, even if you do manage to get an insanity plea to stick, it's a massively double-edged sword. After all, proving you're insane enough to dodge a prison sentence is tough. But proving you're okay again? That's often impossible. Uh, so, what can you tell me about Maggie's diagnosis? Well, she's an interesting one. I can't go too deeply into specifics for obvious reasons, but I mean, I can tell you that she was, she was found during her trial to exhibit the symptoms of obsessive behaviour, dissociative disorder, paranoia, schizophrenia, alexithemia. So, sorry, um, alexi... Uh, alexithemia. So broadly, it's a dysfunction in terms of empathy. And this is all on public record. She may opt to tell you more than that herself, but I can't really go into... Maggie? Maggie, Zoe Drew is here to see you. Can we come in? Dr Edwards had led me through a network of brightly lit corridors to a room right at the end of a seemingly deserted wing. Visible through the door's small window was a room roughly the size of the kind you get at university halls of residence. There was a single bed, an ensuite bathroom, a TV, a collection of books and papers and scraps attached to a magnet board above the desk. 
and a sunny view of fields stretching out beyond the layers of fencing at the site's perimeter. And were it not for that fence, it would have been actually kind of nice. Maggie made a mumble noise from inside to infer that we could enter, and the doctor opened the latch. Okay, time to fill in the gaps the good doctor left out. The full extent of Maggie's diagnosis and the reason she's in here instead of a conventional prison is obsessive behaviour, OCD, dissociative disorder, paranoia and paranoid delusions. She suffers from psychotic experiences and schizophrenia and alexithymia and alcoholism and a personality disorder and depression. It's a heady cocktail. And the reason I'm telling you all this is because being armed with all these medical terms did not prepare me for the kind of person Maggie actually is. At all. Maggie Hollis, now 77 years old, is not some crazed psychopath. She's just a little old lady. She's curt and spry and rough around the edges, sure. And her room is clearly very obsessively neat and busied with items. But she is, I hope she doesn't mind me saying, just an old woman. And so, although all the evidence said otherwise, I didn't really feel like I was sitting in the presence of a murderer. Though that didn't stop me from feeling as though I'd already fallen way, way too far down the rabbit hole. Dr. Edwards held back as I introduced myself. Then we all sat. Maggie and I on the bed and the doctor at the desk. And I began to ask Maggie some of my burning questions. Confession time. If I sound nervous in this interview, it's because I was. I had so many questions and no idea where or how to start. Oh, I love this book. This is one of my favourites at school. Yes, well, I've worn that copy now, haven't I? I've read that a few times, I think. The library's a little bit lacking here, isn't it, Jonathan? I think you just get through them too quickly. Anyway, I can get some more brought in. Bring some new ones in, if you like. Hmm. So, Miss Drew, books aside, what exactly is it that you want? Maggie was direct and to the point. She didn't ask how I was or where I travelled from or who I work for. This was her opening gambit. What do you want? Oh, um, I'm, uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess um, I was hoping that you could shed some light on events for me so that I can figure out what actually happened on October 3rd, 2005. Oh, young lady. Well, if I've not been able to figure out what happened on that day in the... 10 years plus since it happened, well, I very much doubt you'll be able to. She leaned in really close as she spoke and gripped me on the shoulder so that I could see the musty clouds of the cataract she has over one eye. It was a bit too close, really. I looked over at Dr Edwards nervously, who said nothing, but looked back at me as if to say, I told you so, she's obtuse. 
Oh, look, I've been through this so many times with so many people. But, well, if you think it'll help, then you can listen to my tapes. But first, I think you'd better tell me what it is that you know. Uh, okay. <laughs> sure, okay. So, I... I... I know that Laura Ray and James Logan are both dead. Maggie had boxed me into a corner here. I mean, the verdict said that she killed both of these people. One seemingly by accident with her car, and one seemingly on purpose with her bare hands some years prior. And I wasn't sure if I should confront her with that. So I wimped out. At this moment, I looked at the doctor for help, and thankfully he intervened. Maggie, I'm fairly sure Zoe knows what's officially available to read. Alright? I think she would like to know your version of events. Or if you're feeling tired, we can reschedule the whole thing. Or just forget it totally. It's up to you. Oh, look, I suppose that if I were you, that is a journalist, I would want to know what my link was to Mr. Logan, is that correct? And the answer to that is, well, it's very complex. But it started out, I suppose, fairly innocuously. Just an aside. Yep, she really does talk like that. Like someone from a cartoon. Well, James Logan had gone missing. And I was hired by his friend, Mr Mark Thompson, to track him down. And when was that? Five or six years, I suppose, prior to when they found his decaying body. Now, Miss Drew... Bearing that in mind, how many years do you think the body had been decomposing for? Maggie was pointing back towards Mark, the same Mark who had pointed me to Maggie. So who was the better starting point? I'd only spoken to Mark Thompson briefly at this point but it sounded like there was more to the case than he was letting on. I didn't know what to make of it, but man, did I have more questions. Only, there was a problem. The conversation with Maggie may have only been a few minutes in, but around this point, she became totally unresponsive. She just closed off. It was weird. Here was this woman, a woman who's going to spend the rest of her days locked up in this sterile ward and submitted to a frequently changing course of drugs and holistic treatments and surrounded by other dangerous inmates. And she didn't seem bothered about trying to change any of it. She didn't care that someone might come along with fresh ears and, who knows, take her side? Shed some light? She spoke like, oh, like a woman who'd resigned herself to a certain truth and who'd resigned herself to the fact that it didn't matter who else believed in that truth. And so, only a few short minutes into our talk, which I had travelled halfway across the country for, I might add, she just stopped talking and the doctor had to call things off. But it wasn't totally in vain. 
For one thing, she'd given me a fresh lead. But more importantly, the last thing she said before giving me the cold shoulder was that I could talk to her again under the right conditions. She said I could come back to her after I'd listened to her tapes, old voice recordings from her PI days. You'll find much better questions to ask in those tapes, she said, adding that, and I quote, it isn't really worth my time speaking to her until I'd done my due research. So I left. I asked Dr Edwards on the way out what tapes Maggie was referring to and where they might be, and he told me that she talks about them often. She used to keep audio recordings of everything. Um, it's actually, it, it was a habit that um, something my predecessors had to wean her off of. And they're important somehow to all this? Well, she claims so. But then that's, I mean, you have to know where to indulge patients and when to let things rest, you know? Uh-huh. So where are they now, the old the old ones? I mean, are, are they here or will they have been sealed with the records or...? Honestly, I don't know. Sorry. I think... I, and don't, don't pin me to this, but um, I think they were considered as evidence from both sides, by both of the legal teams. So they'll probably be in that part of the system somewhere. Naturally, I got home and immediately started digging around to find where these tapes might be and how I could try to get hold of them. And there, I ran into an immediate brick wall. In most instances, evidence from a criminal court case is kept for around three years after disposition and then destroyed. Defeated, I filed a Freedom of Information request with the requisite bodies just in case. Closed the laptop and sighed heavily. It was another devastating dead end, and once again I thought it was all over. But then something unbelievable happened. You know that old saying that whatever you've lost will always be in the last place you look? That was the case for my phone that night when I was done researching and wanted to get to bed. I was at home the very house that James Logan had died in, and I couldn't find the thing anywhere. Turns out, it was right at the bottom of my bag, hiding, which I realised only when I tipped out its contents onto the bed in a flurry. And there, sitting on top of my phone and surrounded by chewing gum wrappers and crumpled receipts and a bunch of other old crap, was a small envelope with my name on it. As I peeled the thing open, I realised what must have happened. I realised that Maggie must have slipped it into my bag when she leaned in to look at me. She must have surreptitiously placed it in there as she distracted me with a shoulder tap. Inside the envelope was a note, perhaps the shortest letter I've ever been written. All it had on it was an address in London, written in scratchy biro, and two numbers. 219 and 1411. This was it. She was leading me to her recordings, but she was also leading me to a twist in the tale that would change everything I thought I knew about every single person involved. But I didn't know that then. At that point, with this cryptic note in my hand and tired from one of the strangest meetings of my life, I only knew two things. 
I had to get some more time to talk with Mark Thompson, and I had to listen to those tapes. Coming up this season on Unresolved. It's bullshit. It claims that James was still alive then, and that's... Uh, it's just not the case. Well, it's not exactly Romeo and Juliet, is it? Botched first date, boy goes missing, boy stalks girl years down the line. If people want to go missing, that they can. Uh, I remember she was shaking up, pretty shaking up the man that he tried to basically force himself onto her at the end of the day. It doesn't ever get better to do anything, anything at all to reinforce it. Can you explain how? Well, if I could do that, we'd not be sat here, would we? Please. I'm scared. I'm scared of this. I think I might have some interesting evidence from a court case that you might want to see. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.